Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is really not a very great connection. I'm wondering if anybody out there can hear me. So if you're in the chat room and you can type in that yes, you can hear me and you can't, I would greatly appreciate it. Because I could not tell at this point. I'll start with the show anyway because I'm really not sure. <laughs> this is too funny. Oh, great. Okay.
Welcome, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. This is T-Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a certified reconnective healing practitioner, sound therapist, and positive psychology practitioner with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams live to you each and every week. Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion that's already happening online. We have had a bit of a rough start this evening, but I think we're good now. We do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, go ahead and post it, and we will do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go, you can't continue to listen online, simply call us directly by dialing 347-202-0227, and that way you can listen via phone, or please be sure to use your Bluetooth if you are driving about. Today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. With Audible.com, you can listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want, and you can get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. So that's our URL, which is www.audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. So go check that out after the show, and you, know, you might be able to see some things on there that you'll find very interesting. The topic for today's show is sacred sounds as it pertains to yoga. Now, you all know I'm a certified sound therapist, so sound is very important to me in my work. It's also an important part of a yoga practice, and we are going to learn how that is from my guest, Alana Cavalia, co-author of Myths of the Asanas, as well as the book we'll be discussing, Sacred Sound, Discovering the Myth and Meaning of Mantra and Kirtan. She is the founder of the Cavalia Yoga Method, and an internationally known teacher, author, and mythologist. In 2008, Yoga Journal recognized Alana as one of the top 20 teachers under 40, which is a huge honor, and she is the yoga world's expert on Hindu mythology and mysticism, so this should be very exciting. Alana travels the world teaching at conferences, workshops, and teacher trainings in the Kavalya Yoga Method, which melds mythology, philosophy, and yoga all together. Welcome to the show, Alana. Thank you so much for joining us. How do you be? It's a, I'm doing well. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I want to get right into the topic because there's really a whole lot to cover. So I thought it may be best if we could start this discussion, if you don't mind, by telling our listeners how it is that you became so interested in sound. Interestingly, actually, I was born with a hearing impairment, and so from a very early age, I developed a very different relationship to sounds than I think most people do. Um, I was basically told, or really not told by my parents, that anything was different or wrong about me, and so um, I learned some pretty unique coping mechanisms as far as how to hear and understand and relate to the world, and my relationship with sound has always been um, very visceral. I was always able to feel the sound before sometimes I could even hear it. Um, For example, my father used to wake me up on Sunday mornings by playing the Phantom of the Opera really loudly, Um, but I couldn't hear the music. I could just feel the vibrations underneath my bed, and we used to go to air shows, and I would feel the planes before I could even see them. Um, So it always was really clear to me that sound was a felt sense. And um, I was actually really surprised when I was probably in my early teens when I learned that the way that I heard was actually different from other people um, and that I had a unique take on this. And so it 
took some learning to figure out, uh, to kind of reverse and figure out how, how people usually hear uh, without that felt sense. And then my work as a yoga teacher has been to try to translate that vibration and that vibrational quality um, through the yoga and the music and, um, and the sound to, to my students. That's really interesting because being a sound therapist, I could always feel vibration of sound, and that's what drew me to, to playing quartz crystal singing bowls specifically for healing purposes. And mm-hmm. I studied quantum physics, and I went through a lot of training in order to figure out if this was viable and worked. And, and I had to do a similar thing, except I wanted to enhance that ability that I had to mm-hmm. really feel the vibration more. So that's sure. interesting because, yeah, you know, I, I hear, I think, like everybody hears, most everybody hears, you did not, and you were able to, you have to translate back, and I'm trying to enhance what I'm doing and explain it to people so they understand it. It's very, very interesting because sound is a felt sense, and most people don't get that. Yeah, it is very interesting. And, you know, I actually um, I studied physics in college as well, and I really fell in love with it because there was suddenly a cosmology that fit with my understanding of the universe, um, you know, in that everything is basically vibration. And I remember when I first learned that in one of my astronomy classes, I'm thinking, oh, God, like, like duh, of course it is, and yay <laughs> that, that everybody agrees with me. This is very exciting. <laughs> that's true. It validated what you were doing. God bless, right? Oh, my yeah. goodness. That's <laughs> yeah, I, I came at it from, you know, everything is energy, and energy has a vibration, and every vibration has a frequency, and that's why, it, and the frequencies are what I work with with the crystal bowls. You're working with a different level of frequency, and, and we'll get into that in a minute. What I wanted to um, ask you a couple of questions about was you talked mm-hmm. about the purpose of mythology and yoga. Now, yeah, mythology, as far as I remember, and, you know, it's going back a while, it was a fable or a le- legend. Usually it was vague or unknown or a forgotten origin, and basically it was religious or supernatural in nature, if you will, and it seeks sure. to explain or rationalize one or more aspects of the world or a society. So having that information based on mythology that I learned in high school and everything, what is the mythology of yoga and what is its purpose? Well, I, I like, I like, no, it's a super loaded question. And I like your um, very concise description actually of mythology. T. That was really lovely. Um, and I think that, yes, in general, that is what mythology is. But I would go one step deeper and say that mythology is the language of the unconscious. So if you think about the way that you dream at night, the way that you dream at night is always in story form. It's always fantastical. And you are basically always the center of your own story. So the myths and legends of the religious and spiritual traditions throughout the world, throughout cultures, throughout history, have always expressed essentially the workings of the inner reaches of our own mind. And if we're really going to create transformation, we have to do it on both the physical and conscious level, as well as both the non-physical and unconscious level. So when I bring mythology into my classes and into my work, it's a way to um, actually be more integrated in the work. I mean, it's one thing to do physical asana, and that's all well and good, but if it's not accompanied with a deeper layer of work, it's only, it's, it's only going to get you so far. Um, the mythology of yoga is kind of what you would expect it to be. It comes from 
the Indian, the Vedic, and the Hindu traditions, um, the, the difference between a, what, I would, what I would describe as a Hindu mythology versus a yogic mythology is simply the intention of it. Um, the Hindu mythology would point you to something outside of you, whereas the yogic mythology would point to something that's inside of you. Yoga is a very esoteric tradition, meaning it's trying to get us to connect to the internal source of all that is, the internal source of our being, as opposed to a worshipful tradition that tries to connect us with something outside of us. Um, so that's sort of a quick and dirty definition and um, reason why I bring mythology into my work. That, no, that, that's very true because it is uh, going within, you know, and a lot of yeah. people, I mean, we, li- we live in a culture where from what I have seen over the past, let's say, 10 years, People are starving. They are starving for better ways oh, yeah. to stay grounded, <laughs> to release anxiety and stress. And they're really beginning Definitely. to understand that by looking within, that's where we find happiness and joy. That's where the true bliss is. You can't experience it outside if you don't have it within. And that's all Absolutely. any of us really wants. Yep. And I think yoga I is impacting our entire culture in a big way and that it allows for us to find that joy and become less reactive and actually learn to live in the present moment more once we are outside of the yoga class, because as you just said, if you're just going and you're doing the physical part, which some people do, that's what they want. They just go because they want to stretch and stay flexible and get to Shavasana because the goal of yoga is, you know, uh, <laughs> meditation. But meditation is supposed to get you in so that you have that peace and you can draw on that when challenges come up in life. Is that not true? Yeah, it is true. I mean, you know, one of the things I'm struggling with today is watching how Many people do assume that yoga is merely a physical practice, and um, that truly is a misunderstanding of what yoga is truly capable of, which is complete personal transformation. And the tried and true practice of yoga really is meditation along with the mantra. Um, That's the thing that is 5,000 years old. These postures are actually really new on the scene, and they are really only going to get you so far. So if all you're looking for is a yoga butt, then they're great. But if you're looking for something more um, more transformational, then you're going to have to dig a little deeper into the yoga practice. I think people are doing that and they're not realizing that they are because it kind of comes with the territory if you are in the practice and you're there. You might start just to go because you think, well, okay, it will get me over. You know, for instance, a lot of people come in and say, well, I had a bad back and I was going to a chiropractor and I decided to start doing yoga. And two years mm-hmm. later, I didn't have a bad back anymore, no more chiropractor. Well, that's pretty much true because you're making these adjustments in your postures as you go through your mm-hmm. routine. But sure. I think with that comes a sense of deepness that even if the instructor's not doing that, because my instructors that I have do not do that. They do not talk deeper level stuff, but I know I've gotten it. And it has to just be something that kind of happens if you practice the yoga enough. Does that make sense? I think that it does. I mean, I think that there's a spark that's kindled with the yoga practice, but um, the accessibility for those deeper practices really needs to kind of needs to be taken up a notch a little bit, um, mm. you know, and I think that people would certainly find it a lot faster and they would be more, um, more well prepared for when things do come up in yoga um, if they have some of the, the more uh, mythological and philosophical knowledge that comes along with the practice. Now, is that what you mean by the power of myth in yoga? Uh, the deeply transformational part? Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by that? You know, the, that going, that is the power of the myth? 
Well, I mean, I think there's two separate things here. There's the power of myth, and, and that that is a general statement is um, is what I would say is the, you know, myth is the language of the unconscious, and the power of myth in all of its forms, no matter which slant you're taking it on from, whether it be Greek myth, yogic myth, um, uh, Native American myth, any myth has the power to speak to the unconscious and speak to what's alive within you on a level that you can't speak consciously or physically. So um, that is one thing. And the power of yoga has the power to cause a deep, profound psychological transformation. And one of the ways it does that is through the myth. So it's one of yoga's many tools. Okay. Now, there is a difference in yoga as it pertains to, say, Western versus Eastern culture, correct? <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, what we do here in the West is a flavor of yoga that is very new. It's very modern. It's very, um, it's very different from, from what they have done historically and what they are doing in the East. Um, Eastern yoga practices are primarily um, kind of ritualistic, uh, prayerful, um, meditative, and very religiously oriented for the most part. Um, the Western practice, again, most of us, when we say yoga, assume that we're talking about the physical postures, um, and that's really, not, that's really not done that much in India. And, in fact, the people who are doing physical postures in India are the Westerners who travel there to do them. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then the outsiders trying to cut into the yoga class and say, this is what you're yeah. supposed to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay. there's, yeah there's, there's a few Indians who are actually doing it there. And, of course, um, there are a couple of notable Indian teachers who um, thrust asana onto the scene in a, in a really popularized way. But they were, again, they were very brand new, and there's really only a handful of them. This is not the kind of traditional practice that people have engaged in as far as yoga goes. But I thought that the yoga postures actually came from the Eastern culture. Um, well, that's kind of a... Well, I don't myth. like to use the word myth this way, yeah, but it is a, it is a popularized myth. Um, most of the yoga postures are less than 100 years old uh, and were essentially created by um, a guy named Krishnamacharya in the early 1900s. Um, there's evidence of less than 50 yoga postures any earlier than around the 1400s or so. Um, you know, one of the things that is often done in, in many traditions throughout the world, actually, is to, instead of dating something and saying, this is from 1776 or this is from 1892, uh, is to pin it on tradition and to pin it on, um, like, cosmic history. So, you know, to say that these postures have, you know, come down to us from the gods or we've divined them, is one way to make them seem more powerful and efficacious. But the reality is, if you actually look at the data and you have to actually look at the history of it, um, that many of the things that we're doing today are certainly less than 100 years old. Most of the things are decades old. Um, I know yoga teachers who are literally making up postures um, weekly <laughs> as they go. So it's not the historical... Um, you know, it hasn't been verified as a way to achieve yoga, to be perfectly honest. We, we are not sure um, that asana, specifically the postures, is a way to gain enlightenment. Um, we know meditation works. Uh, we've had lots right. of evidence of, of people throughout history gaining yoga through meditation. But an asana, I do believe, is a way to help um, 
regulate the energetic body and create physical health. But as far as a um, you know a way to get enlightenment, we just we don't know. We don't know if the evidence is there yet. I have always been told that, you know, the posture is yoga. The goal of yoga is meditation. The postures prepare you for meditation. But also that yoga is, you know, truth, you know, um, namaste. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. Now, now I'm kind of like, okay, if, I mean, who's, who's passing this on and perpetuating this quote-unquote lie that these postures have been around for, you know, since before the earth was formed, practically. <laughs> and that's just crazy because... It's a it spiritual is. practice. Spirituality should be based on truth. Well, but there's different kinds of truth, T. I mean, there is cosmic truth. There is empirical truth where 2 plus 2 equals 4. And there's the truth of things that you believe for yourself, which are true for you, but not necessarily true for everyone else. So yeah, if you're going to use truth, you have to define that. There well, and I tell you what, I taught that, I taught this for over a decade. I taught that the yoga postures were 5,000 years old for more than a decade because that's what I also thought. Um, it was a book called The Yoga Body by Mark Singleton that actually changed my whole mind about this, and I started to do further research and um, connect with people who are actually in academia who are doing the research to find out the source and the nature of these things. And it really blew my world apart because I really thought that I had been doing something that was 5,000 years old. But I tell you, as yeah. soon as I figured out it was a lot more recent, I felt a lot more freedom. The pressure was off. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I can move and breathe with ease and not think that there is one right way to do the posture, not think that there, you know, that these different schools of yoga are at odds when, when people does triangle this way and when people do triangle this way. Like, nobody's got it right and nobody's got it wrong. So let's just move, breathe, have a good time, and let this lead us into the deeper, more um, verified and really exciting parts of the practice. Well, see, now I like that a lot better, too, because you're blowing my mind as well. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I do what I can. <laughs> I do what I can. Listen to you. I do what oh, I my can. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's get into a little bit of the sound part. It, 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 just so that everybody's on the same page, can you give us a definition of uh, kirtan so that, you know, people know, okay, this is what that is, and then give us a definition of mantra so that we know the difference between the two. Sure. I'll actually start with mantra um, because this is okay. the part that is um, this is the part that is super old and it's been around for millennia and and we do know that it has been around for millennia. Um, so mantra is a the, the word mantra is a Sanskrit word and um, the word itself means essentially to bridge the mind so or to protect the mind. It's got a couple of different translations as many Sanskrit words do, um, but the idea is that it is a short phrase in Sanskrit that helps you to get across that mental chatter, um, the constant dialogue in the brain, the preferences, the I want this, I don't want that, the, um, the downward spirals that sometimes happen, or the constant loops of thoughts that you can't get out of your head. If you want to get past those, and mantra is an excellent tool for that. There are short phrases that we're meant to repeat over and over because, interestingly, the mind can only hold one thought at a time. So mm -hmm. if the thought is this short phrase, you're actually helping to bridge the mind to the deeper recesses and parts of yourself. And so that's the purpose of mantra. It's a short phrase that's repeated. And generally the phrase has some kind of um, energetic thrust. So, for example, it's a phrase that is meant to um, 
attune you to the light of self-awareness, or it's a phrase that is meant to connect you with an infinite source of truth, or it's a phrase that's meant to um, allow you to, to know yourself as, as truly who you are. So each of these phrases has um, kind of a meaning behind it, and depending on what the meaning is, is will make a difference on which mantra you choose, and that's part of the reason why I wrote the book. But the mantra practice is millennia old. We find some of the very first mantras in the Vedas, which are the oldest spiritual texts known to man. And um, so these are, and we don't actually know the date of these. There's some speculation that they were written around 4500 BCE, um, but that date is, is movable. We're not exactly sure, but that's still a very long time ago. So for a long time, people have been using some of these short phrases. Some of them are a little bit newer, but either way, their potency remains the same. And because the language of Sanskrit is a vibrational language, um, different from English, which is a descriptive language, um, the vibrations of the Sanskrit help to recalibrate and uplift your energetic body, which is also a really nice side effect and benefit from the mantra. So if we move the practice forward, in around the ninth century or so, there was a group of very devoted, um, yogically-minded folks who decided that singing to God was a really great way to get closer to the source. Um, I happen to agree. And interestingly, humanity throughout history, no matter where you look, has always had a musical tradition, but there's no evolutionary reason for that. There's absolutely no evolutionary reason for us to produce music. It doesn't save us. It doesn't feed us. It doesn't cook our food, and it doesn't shelter us. And yet, we have all had a musical tradition because there is something beyond the physical, quantifiable world that music speaks to. Um, all of us feel different when we, when we sing or when we chant or when we're in a room full of music. Um, it speaks to us on a much deeper level. And so these yogis tapped into that, and they, they paired mantra with um, a musical tradition, and the way that this works as kirtan. The practice is called kirtan. And it's a call and response tradition. So the leaders of the practice will um, play their instruments and sing a phrase, which is usually a mantra, and then the audience will chant that same phrase back. And so you go back and forth over time. Um, sometimes the songs are short. Sometimes they last up to 45 minutes. And by the end of the song, you feel really connected and uplifted with whatever it is you're chanting to. And it's a fun way to practice yoga. Now, I am going to disagree with you on one point. Okay. <laughs> when you said there's no reason why the evolution of sound, and I, I disagree completely because the act of singing is one of the easiest ways of raising the vibration of your body as you harmonize mm -hmm. with the universe. And music notes, because we talk and we don't sing when we speak to each other, the frequency of our own voices is totally different from that of musical notes. Musical notes have, and being a sound therapist, I mean, this is my work, musical notes have frequencies, and their specific frequencies can actually heal various parts of the body. One of the frequencies of one of the crystals that I have is 528 hertz, and it is being currently used by genetic biochemists to repair damaged DNA. So we know that vibration causes other things to vibrate and put them into alignment or calibrate them. So I think over the course of time, maybe it wasn't something that we saw, but now that we're stepping into the third phase of medicine, going from the physical to the chemical into the vibrational, we're beginning to see and learn that vibration is a great way to heal, and that has just been evolving since the beginning of time. Nice. That's all. 
I was like, wait a minute. I know there's a reason for music. <laughs> well, no, of course there's a reason for music, but I don't know that evolutionary biologists would um, would yet be, and I'll use the word, attuned to that particular reason. No, but genetic, you know, they're, they're looking at things like, like we know that we, we know why there's a reason that our, our thumbs are opposable. We know that there's a reason that our ears are on the sides of our head and that our head is on the top of our body. And, those are all things we can evolutionarily explain, but what we can't evolutionarily explain biologically is the, the reason why we all produce music. Um, so it sounds like there's some research getting into that, and I really appreciate it. And I would love to—I would love to actually know more about that. If you can send me the research, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I mean, there's like—it's been going on for about 25 years. I mean, I've been studying this stuff forever, and sound therapy has been used over and over again. My God, it's taught at Harvard. You know, there's a lot out there about it. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bruce Lipton is a genetic, a current day genetic biochemist, and he does a lot with sound and the DNA, the restructuring. So there's a lot going on. It's I love awesome. the National Institutes of Health. Yeah, it really is. It is very interesting. So That's to me, cool. when I see that, yeah, it's things that you know maybe we don't know it yet, but there are some people that do because mm-hmm. they're working on it, and it's just not out there. I mean, I'm one of a handful of people that play quartz crystal singing bowls in the world specifically for healing purposes. There aren't a lot of us. There's like four of us in the United States that are certified to do so. A lot of people mm-hmm. play bowls, but they're not doing it specifically for healing because they haven't learned what we've learned. So right. it is something that's been coming. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, let's Very see. Cool. Let's take a short break. Energy Awareness Radio is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. And they have over 150,000 titles to choose from, many of which we've discussed on this show, including The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks, The Courage to Be Free by Guy Finley, A Message of Hope from the Angels by Lorna Byrne, and of course, Dr. Bernie Siegel, who is, oh my gosh, he's just wonderful and he's been here numerous times. Just search for his name on the site, and you'll see a number of his, his books come up. And there are so many books available from so many different authors. The best part is you can listen to audiobooks on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our URL, which is audibletrial.com slash energyawareness, you get one free audiobook along with a one-month trial of the service. So write that down, www.audibletrial.com slash energyawareness, to find the books of interest to you. We appreciate all of our listeners, and we're so grateful for your support. So remember, the site is www.audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. Now, okay, so the first part of the book is, is talks about mantra specifically, and then the second part of your book goes into the kirtan. Mm-hmm. Correct? Okay. Yes. So... When you're teaching your yoga practice, do you do the formal postures and everything like that as well yeah. as chanting? And, and how does that work for you? I do. I mean, it depends on, you know, it depends on the nature of what I'm teaching. I, I teach a lot of workshops. I do a lot of kirtan. So sometimes in workshops or kirtan, just because of the nature of the topic, I won't do an asana practice. But um, if I'm teaching a workshop that involves asana or if I'm teaching a regular um, yoga asana class, of course, it'll involve the postures. And generally, I start people in a seated meditation practice, and uh, we start with chanting some of the more classic mantras and keep it really simple. Sometimes I'll bring along my harmonium, or I'll even have a couple of other musicians with me, and we'll actually do a formal kirtan at the beginning of practice. Um, and then I generally connect whatever mantra we have been working with um, to the story, as I do in the book, in the class. And then I weave that story throughout the asana practice so that 
the physical practice becomes like a ritual in which to embody the mythology that is um, the topic for the day. And then I bring it together at the end. I usually sing people, sing to people in Shavasana. And then after we come out of Shavasana, I'll usually um, chant with them again just to kind of close the class with some songs. I don't think a lot of people do this. No, I think it's pretty unique. Yeah, I think I really do. I think it's, I mean, do you happen to know how many teachers are similar to you in this country? Um, well, some of the ones that I have trained have learned to do this. But, I mean, I was very lucky to be a musician as well. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I feel like maybe a little bit of that helped to contribute to my confidence in bringing music into the class. Um, but, no, I, I, don't, I don't know if I could put a number on how many people do, do that kind of thing. I don't think it's a whole lot at all because it's very interesting. It would be very interesting to take a class like that because where I am, I'm located near New York City, and whether I take a class here in New Jersey where I'm based or I go into the city. You're what? I'm in Queens. Oh, you're in Queens? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, you know, maybe I should come and take a class because that's not that far. You know, I go into the city sometimes to take, for instance, blindfolded yoga because I find that when I'm I'm doing yoga, I do it with my eyes closed almost all the time. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not looking at anybody else. I don't want to see what they're doing. I'm in my own little world. I'm trying to do what I need to do for me because it helps me when I'm doing my work. If I'm, when I'm doing my energy therapy on someone or doing the sound healing on someone, I'm totally focused on that person. And yoga does that for me. So it, and I see other people bringing that aspect of yoga into their life where they are becoming more focused on things and they have more clarity of mind. But we're not doing the chanting, you know, or the singing or anything like that. Music plays, but that's not the same thing as, as when you're creating it yourself and you can feel that vibration. You know what I sure. mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think no, that's I really think it's interesting. A wonderful practice. Yeah. And, I mean, I've done, I've done all sorts of um, sort of musically related things in my classes. And some of my favorites have been uh, when I've had um, live musicians in classes who can be responsive mm. to, to to the energy of the class and um, also mm-hmm. drumming. I've had a couple of live drummers, and that's always really great. Helps mm-hmm. synchronize people's yeah. breaths pretty successfully. Yeah, I've done my crystal bowls. I have 17 of them, and I've done them in yoga classes for instructors. And Right. The students are amazed. Yeah, it just it makes a huge, huge difference. And mm-hmm. yeah, that, it would be very interesting to have it going along and, and take a class like that. I think that would be an extremely interesting uh, form of yoga because it's not something that even in Yoga Journal, uh, which I read, there were articles uh, probably like two or three years ago about the different forms of yoga, and this was not one of them. Is this what what you <laughs> refer to as your Kavalya yoga method? Is it? Is, did you develop this method on your own? Yeah, I mean, I've developed it over, I've been teaching for 14 years, and so it's mm-hmm. taken me that long to figure out how to codify in some in some concrete way what I'm doing. Um, really, the, the, the method itself was born out of the fact that um, I, I do a lot of work on teacher trainings. I've written um, teacher trainings for some of the biggest companies across the country and have been teaching teacher trainings since 2003 and... Um, all over the world and all of that stuff. And a few years ago, I decided to finally develop my own teacher training. Uh, and in doing that, I, I had to call it something. And my last name is Kaivalya, so I figured the Kaivalya, the Kaivalya Yoga Method would, would work <laughs> for that sort of, you know, um, name. I had to, you know, name it. 
Um, and then essentially it was just getting really clear about what I do and how I do it and being able to translate that in a teacher training format to others. Well, and the funny part is, and, and this goes back to, you know, where things are millions of years old, Cavalier is a word that that sounds like it could be because, you know, you get, you know, what is it, um, oh, vinyasa flow and you've got, mm-hmm. You know, Bikram yoga, and you've got all these different kinds of yogas, right? And then you've got Kamala. Yeah. People be like, oh, yeah, okay, I think I want to try that one. I've never tried it before, you know? Well, actually, <laughs> and they would think it's. Um, yeah, it is, it is actually a Sanskrit word. Um, it's the title of the fourth chapter of the Yoga Sutras. And it was something that I ran into many years ago when I first started studying yoga. And um, I had made a decision to change my name, sort of unrelated. and. Um, when I made that decision, I knew exactly what it should be, and so I gave myself the last name Kaivalya, not knowing really and not really understanding that I um, was basically naming myself Ultimate Freedom, which is what the word means. Um, it's synonymous with enlightenment or samadhi. Um, I didn't really understand that at the time. I, I kind of set the bar high for myself, so um, it's been a little funny wandering around with it for the last 10 years, but it's also been a really interesting journey. So the name Kaivalya is Sanskrit, so... Um, way to hit the nose on the head on the, or the nail on the head on that one piece. Yeah, you actually yeah, you know, I mean and, and the thing is that your higher self knew you might not have known consciously, but subconsciously within you you did because we all come in with a purpose and we know what we need to do and we make the changes we make specifically for the purpose that we have. We might not know at the time, but it it shows itself to us later and we say, Oh yeah, that's why I did that. I mean how many times has that happened to you? It's happened to me a million times oh, in my life. We're like, Oh, time. that's why I did that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So this is this is very cool. You have a great story, you know. <laughs> you really do, you know. And the book is very, very interesting. Now, the words that we use, that my feeling is the words that we use are based on our thoughts. And I'm of the belief that what we yeah. think and then express in words truly does create our world because everything is oh, energy, yeah. thoughts are energy. And when we express yeah. by words, that too is energy with more power behind it, and that leads to action, which is even greater energy. And when you put music to it, that's even greater energy. So the mantras that you offer, do people write their own mantras as well, or do they stick to the ones that you provide? Um, I guess it could be an and-both scenario. I mean, the ones that I have written in the book are the ones that um, have some time to them, um, and mm. have been tried and true to some extent. So they're, you know, I'm pulling them either from source text um, or from various traditions. Uh, you know, they have a they have a root in antiquity. Even if it's a fairly modern antiquity, it, it does have a root somewhere. So those are the ones I've written about in the book. I do know that there are musicians who um, who write their own, um, but you know, I think both work as long as it as long as they serve the purpose of allowing you to continuously uh, stay focused on it so that your mind can, uh, or so that the ego part of the mind can kind of rest and fall away for a little bit. And feel it because, and you can say something over and over again, if you don't feel it, nothing's going to happen. You have to feel yeah. it. You have to put that feeling into it so that you get, you know, that's what gives it the power. That's, that's putting your foot on the gas pedal. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. I like you know, that. it really is. Yeah, but you, you, know, yes. you can say over and over again, you know, oh, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But if you're saying it like that, you know, that's not doing it. You have to really feel it. And by saying it right. over and over again isn't going to do it. So you have to put that feeling behind it. Now, Joseph Campbell is the founder of the field of comparative mythology, and he's a major that's influence right. to those 
her work with myths at this time. Yep. How has he influenced your work? Oh, gosh, he is at the heart of my work. Um, I mean, you can't throw a stick very far at the field of mythology without running squarely into <laughs> Joseph Campbell. Um, and so I, you know, I've known about him for quite a long time. And, um, you know, the more I walked down the path of mythology, the more I just fell in love with Joe's work and had great respect for what he did in really pointing out the similarities between the various myths of the world. And that was of great comfort to me, um, particularly because I started teaching yoga very young and I was teaching something that was very, um, I guess you could say fringe at the time. You know, I mean, not a lot of people were talking about the myths and the stories and I was just really attached to them. Um, So I loved knowing that these stories spoke universal truths and I was just so appreciative of that. And a couple of years ago, um, you know, I just decided it was time to to go even further down this road of mythology. And so um, I've actually been pursuing a degree in mythology, and I've just gotten my master's, and I'm on my way to my Ph.D. So, um, Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. That's wonderful. You're welcome. (laughs) That's really cool. (laughs) Now, you said... You said earlier that you teach workshops. Do you teach workshops around the country? I mean, I know you go around the world, but do you teach, uh, I'm presuming it's on your website, do you teach anything in the area on a regular basis, or does it happen kind of like when it's set up to do scheduled? Um, Kind of both. I regularly teach um, 100-hour teacher training immersions. Um, There are advanced teacher trainings at Pure Yoga on the Upper West Side in New York. Um, And then I do workshops at various places around the country, such as Kripalu in Massachusetts, um, mm-hmm. Esalen Institute out in California. Um, and then sometimes my, my colleagues and friends will invite me to their studios and I'll, I'll lead a weekend of workshops there or I'll contribute to a teacher training there. Um, I get to travel quite a bit, which is it's really nice. And all of that's on my website, alanak.com. That's great. That's really terrific. You know, for yeah. those people who have been practicing for a long time, I've been practicing forever, and, but I'm not a teacher, and people keep telling me, you should go and be a teacher, and I say, why? Why should I go and be a teacher? I do this for me and my work. I have enough on my plate. I can't teach. Uh, I don't want to teach. I just want to be in the class and participate. Why would sure. I want to you know, That's I mean, every, yeah, everybody's got their forte. And, and even one of my yoga instructors said, but you could. And I said, you know, I probably could, but I wouldn't enjoy it. And therefore, I don't feel I'd do, do it justice. So no, I, I go mean, from, that's great reasoning. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, why do I want to do that? I'm a sound therapist, a positive psychology therapist. Come on, I, I can't put more on my plate. I believe in doing uh, things that you do well and not scattering yourself. So yeah. even though I've been doing it for a long time, I've never heard of what you were doing until I read your book. And it's just, you know, it's so much more than a yoga class for me because really what you do on your mat is how you are in your life. If, and when you're changing on your mat, your life is changing if you're aware and you can see that. Having sure. said that, I've also had yoga instructors who talk a good game. They can talk in front of the class and tell you what they need to do. And then outside of the classroom, really, they're a different person. And I think, wow, that's just not yoga, you know? So it's all well and good, and it allows us to grow in real yoga. And, you know, and that really lets you get to where you need to be. And it's our Mm -hmm. choice to put what we get from our practice of yoga into our practice of daily life. How do you think it would or what kind of advice could you give somebody who was either a long-time practitioner to fully deepen their practice, and then what would you say to a beginner so that they could really 
get the right footing so that they would be able to have a practice? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, I guess I'll start with the beginner. So for the beginner, I would say um, I would recommend doing the yoga tour. You know, if, if yoga is something that speaks to you and you want to give it a try and give it some, give it a good effort, um, don't be afraid to to try different types of yoga, to look around at different types of teachers, um, to start doing your research, asking friends, you know, this is a spiritual practice. Um, mm-hmm. You can't really you can't really get around that. So you want to find the person that really speaks to you, the person that really enlivens you. That when you're in front of them, it, it's almost like a part of your soul or your heart lights up in some way. And they don't have to be saying anything overly complicated. It can be really simple. It can even be just the directions of the physical practice. But you know, make sure that this is the person that you trust, and do not be afraid to check their credentials. Because oh, yeah, please do that. A, oh, yeah, because yoga is an unregulated industry, and mm-hmm. there's no one checking up on what people know and how much they know and how much training they've had. So, unfortunately, the yoga student needs to do that for themselves and be unafraid to ask what training people have had. And, you know, I recommend finding teachers with as much extensive training as possible, particularly in anatomy and physiology, since most of us disseminate this information through yoga asana classes, the posture practice. So Mm -hmm. um, that would be my advice to beginners. And my advice to more advanced practitioners would be to get ready to stand on your own two feet. Um, The purpose of any teacher is to take you far enough to the point where you can do it yourself and where you can lead yourself home. Um, You cannot follow anyone's path. You know, if you, like Joseph Campbell would say, if you follow their path, it's not yours. Right. (laughs) And everyone has their own personal path to um, transformation and to bliss. So, you know, use the wisdom that you've learned from your teachers and just get ready. You know, it will happen in its own time, but just get ready and prepare yourself to stand on your own two feet in this spiritual practice and take yourself all the way. And and that is something you can still continue to go to classes. It's not to say that and then stop going to classes and do it at home. Right. It's yeah. That's the part where when things when when you incorporate it into your daily life, really incorporate it into your daily life. And and nobody's saying this is a religion, it is a spiritual practice. There is a huge yeah. difference between the two. Yeah. And yet uh, having been brought up Catholic, the Catholic Church for a long time thought that it was a religion and they forbade people from taking yoga and I thought, Really? Because oh yeah. well, <laughs> I'm not doing that. You know, you're a religion. Yeah. You're not the one I want to be with right now. You know, um, yeah, not being very, very open like that. But I think that that's very true. That if you can learn something and deepen the practice enough to carry it into your own life, and then go and take the classes as, you know, an auxiliary, you know, and mm-hmm. and or as an adjunct to what you're doing, uh, that's a great way to to help get you through a lot of things. I mean, I know uh, when I was, I moved to New Jersey 10 years, 12 years ago and uh-huh. six, six years ago, eight years ago, I uh, had ovarian cancer and I was doing yoga and I have to say my yoga, that's what got me through. That was my battleground. That was where I fought my fight and it was great. Wow. And, it, awesome. and I have one, I have one spot 
in the yoga class and nobody takes it. Everybody knows that's T's spot. Don't take it. That's where she is. You know, somebody told me yeah. I was territorial. I said, I said, you don't understand. And then the teacher said once, let's all move our mats around. And I didn't. And she said, you're not going to get to know anyone. And I said, I know everyone in this room. Ask somebody else. And they all said, no, they didn't know everyone. She said, well, how can that be? You never move your mat. And I said, that's why, because they all move in groups. And so they're <laughs> going to a group. I'm, I'm sitting here, and eventually they get to me. I know every single person in the room. So, you know, please don't tell me where I need to be. You know, this is where I'm comfortable. Because right. she was trying to say, you know, you need to get out of your comfort zone. I do that in life. When I go to yoga, please don't tell me where I have to stay. Please don't tell me what I, you know, just let me do my practice because that's what I'm here for. People gravitate to certain areas and feel comfortable there. And it's not to be uncomfortable, or, or do, you, do you believe that you need to move around and do the discomfort thing? Because I think you get enough of that thrown at you in life. Um, <laughs> well, actually, not to be contradictory, but I, I think that learning to be uncomfortable is a critical step uh, in the mm-hmm. yoga practice, actually. And one of the things that is so important, um, and I do believe very beneficial with asana, is that you put yourself in very uncomfortable situations on the mat, and it's like a test laboratory so that you can understand what it means to breathe and stay with the discomfort and not run away from it because anytime you find resistance, that is, that is a place where you are still not yet free. And whether that's physically where you find resistance in your hips or your muscles or your tissues, whether it's mentally where you sit there and you stew about a pose and you hate it and you don't want to be in it anymore, whether it's emotionally where the pose brings up something that you haven't felt in a long time, you have got to learn to stay with that discomfort because if you can do it in a safe place on your mat, um, then when it is uncomfortable and unpredictable in your real life, you've already got practice. You know what that feels like. So I think I'm a huge I did a fan of pressing up in the discomfort um, in the practice, in the physical practice. So, so was that yoga instructor. And I said to her, well, if you want to live my life and see all the discomfort I've had and know that this is my safe zone, then fine. But I'm not moving. <laughs> she was just like, sure. okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Said, I'm not trying to be, you know, contrary either. I'm just saying, leave me alone. <laughs> and sure. everybody's fine with you know, now they know. Oh, my gosh. We are almost out of time, Alana. I want to thank you so much for joining us here on Energy Awareness Radio. But before you go, would you please tell our listeners once again how they can learn more about you and where they may purchase your book? Sure. Well, you can purchase the book um, anywhere books are sold. So Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, um, any of the other bookstores that you might have in your town or in your area. And then you can find everything you'd ever want to know about me on my website, which is alanak.com. And that's spelled dot com. It's very oh, simple. Oh, and I've got Twitter, yeah, too. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, sorry. Twitter. <laughs> Twitter is at Alana Kaivalia, and I'm on Facebook as well. I always forget about those. That's great. And all of that is on yeah. your website. So once they go to your website, oh, they yeah. can um, you and they can connect via Facebook, correct? Yep. Okay, great. So listeners... We need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a very challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we are meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So send the link for this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. And Alana, if you just hang on for a couple minutes while I finish the outro, I'd like to talk to you in the green room and see how, how you feel about the show, okay? Sounds great. 
Thanks. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. So go ahead and get out your calendar and make note of it now so you remember to tune in next week. Also make note of www.alannak.com. That's alanak.com. And check out her site. This is a really interesting concept. It's a really different way of doing yoga. Get the book, learn about it, read about it, and, you know, and share with everyone that you know. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archive list of past shows, the lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting throughout the year, including upcoming Crystal Singing Bowl concerts. And if you're not in the area or you cannot make a concert, you can order my CD, Imagine, from the site as well. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T. Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. It's not a hand.